You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Have you ever noticed that every phone call that you get, every email, every knock at the door, they're not all created equal, are they? Uh, in fact, increasingly, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of people and a lot of things, whether it's spam through the, the email or whatever, people trying to break into your world. But uh, all of those are not created equal. I remember the first time that uh, I lost somebody that was close to me or somebody that I loved tremendously. I was 28 years old. Uh, my grandfather had just passed away. I was, uh, I didn't know it. I was actually in Africa. I was not at home. And it's crazy to think this was only 20 years ago. This was before cell phones and international plans. So you couldn't just kind of phone home before, I guess, fiber optics doing their thing. And literally, I would, I remember standing at the desk there at the hotel and, uh, and, and saying something, a short sentence, and having to wait, not exaggerating, like two or three seconds, and then for them to hear it, and then to turn around and say it to me, there was a whole time lag. And finding out that my grandfather had died, and I must admit, at the age of 28, I had not experienced a lot of loss in life. I was in a whole other world. I wasn't around family or anything, and it just kind of blew me away. I just didn't know what to do, what to think. I was just kind of shocked about all of that. Uh, every person or everything that comes across your bow, everything that every contact that comes into your world is not always earth shattering, thankfully. Um, I want to share with you this morning what happens when God comes calling into your world. When God comes breaking through into your world, what that looks like and how we ought to respond. So this morning, as we've been talking about uh, the book of Daniel, in fact, this will be our last chapter with King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king of Babylon. He has had an amazing rule, an amazing reign. We don't know how far along into his reign this is. He ruled for a little over 30 years, like 40 years or so, give or take. But if you've, if you've noticed the last few weeks as we've looked at the book of Daniel, God has been strategically reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar. He put not only Daniel, but put his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. We know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but put him right in the center of his kingdom. Brought Daniel into prominence by giving Nebuchadnezzar a dream that he couldn't interpret, and it shook his world. And he came and was confronted with the reality of a God in heaven who rules and oversees everything. But we're going to see today that that didn't have a very long-lasting impact on his life. And he forgot it. Last week, you guys looked at, when I was away, you looked at uh, the Daniel and, uh, or the, the three men in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the Son of God shows up. And once again, God breaking through into Nebuchadnezzar's world, giving him irrefutable evidence of there being a supernatural God that he could not dismiss. And yet, this morning, we'll see that he neglected that. By the way, we often run into people, well, if God's really real, I just need more proof. To be perfectly honest with you, God's given us enough proof. Most people say they need more proof. They're just really not willing to explore and to really be confronted with their finite reality. The proof's there. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw things, heard things that he could not explain that were right in front of him, and he still, still ignored those things. So this morning, God gives Nebuchadnezzar another dream. 
is a dream that he can't explain. In fact, it's a dream that he sees in his dream, this magnificent tree that grows tall. In fact, it reaches up into the heavens, so it would have been a gigantic and enormous kind of tree. And, and you know how dreams go. They can, you know, things become weird and strange in it. But he has this dream where he sees this tree that becomes so tall and its branches spread out literally as far to the ends of the earth as the, as the, the earth is wide, if you will, and all the way to the heavens. And the Bible says that all the birds of the air took refuge in its branches and nested there, and the animals and the beasts of the field took refuge under the tree. But then as he was in this dream, he heard this watchman, this this voice that sent a watchman down that said, cut the tree down. And he watches as the tree is chopped down and it's laid over and all of the branches and all the leaves wither away and, and are dead and dried up and gone. And it says, but the watchman says, but leave the stump and put a, an iron band around the stump for seven seasons or seven times pass. So he has this dream and he can't, explain it. And as we talked about before, that uh, the people in, in Babylon at that time, they feared many things. They believed in multiple gods, and they used all kinds of methods trying to understand what was going on in the future. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't figure it out. So he invites his cabinet members back one more time. This time he didn't threaten to kill them like the first time. But he said, hey guys, I've had a dream. Can you explain it to me? And uh, apparently the, the Daniel's friends in that cabinet kind of knew, like, we better not mess with dreams. So if we say one thing and he goes ask Daniel and Daniel says something else, we're in trouble, we're going to lose our lives. So they all kept their mouths shut, like, King, we don't know what this crazy dream means. No idea whatsoever. And so finally the king brings Daniel in and he tells him the dream. And Daniel is sitting there dumbfounded and just kind of shocked. And he knows what the dream means. And he says, my Lord, may this dream not be for you. May it be for your enemies. And he proceeds to unpack the dream for Nebuchadnezzar and says, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, you're that tree. The time's coming where you're going to be cut down for we best interpreters that we would know the seven seasons or the seven times passing is really most likely seven years. So for seven years, you're going to be lowered to this earth, and in fact, uh, you're going to become like a, a beast of the field. You're going to become like a cow, if you will, and you're going to wander around, and you're going to eat grass, and the dew of heaven is going to be upon you. Um, but you're, and until you recognize and acknowledge, and until you know that the God of heaven is the one who rules over you and gives to whomever he will the kingdom, until you recognize that, you're going to become, uh, act as an animal on this earth. But then when you come to your senses, your kingdom will be restored and you'll be restored back to your place. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're talking to a guy that was able to interpret a previous dream and able to tell you, not just interpret, but to tell you the dream you had last night, I would have listened to him. I would think we would have said, whoa, I better watch this out. I better watch out. Daniel says, hey, king, this is serious stuff. You need to repent of your sins and you need to stop your sins and live righteously. And my second recommendation is to you is that you would have mercy on the, 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 the poor and the needy and those in your kingdom by chance that the God of heaven would allow this judgment to pass by you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar ignores him. And a year later, 
we see King Nebuchadnezzar on top of his palace. Before I hit that, let me hit, this, hit the pause button here. When you, when you read the book of Daniel, there's a lot of wild stuff going on here, right? Uh, you're like, okay, Sean, for real, this guy's going to now eat grass, and he's going to like live, and like, okay, really? Believe it or not, there in, in, psych, in psychology, there is a whole, um, to, today what we would have called this would have been a psychotic break. When somebody experiences a disassociation between reality uh, and that their feelings, their thinking is completely different than, than what reality is all about. And uh, this particular episode, there's actually a psychological term. It's called boanthropy, literally cow man. It's a subset of something else that's called lycanthropy, which means wolf man or kind of animal man. And it's where people in their brains will actually think that they're an animal and they'll begin to do crazy things. Most likely that whole wolf man thing is where the whole uh, werewolf legend kind of came from and that kind of thing and there have been other people down through the years that apparently have thought themselves as cows and so King Nebuchadnezzar had a psychological break that we would say and he wandered around on all fours for a number of years and eating grass don't think that that was the only thing that he ate uh, just because he ate grass didn't mean that he didn't eat other things uh, I'm looking at you guys you've probably never intentionally eaten grass before unless you failed a dare or a bet with your younger brother or something right you know but um, but he lived and didn't have his hair cut and the Bible says his hair grew long and uh, his skin got tough and his nails grew long in that time period and if you were wandering around outside, you would look kind of different than you are today as well. So don't be overly like, this is just so weird and bizarre. It is, but unfortunately, we people experience some of these psychological things even since that time. Um, the difference is, is God's giving it to him as a judgment to him. So catch the story up with me, if you would, in, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 28. Read this with me. So years gone by, King Nebuchadnezzar kind of said, oh, that's cool, and he went on and he forgot about, about this dream and this judgment. And the Bible says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built, I have built by my mighty power as a royal resident, residence and for the glory of my majesty a little bit of audaciousness in those words wouldn't you say a whole lot of i and a whole lot of my in that world i've done all of this ignored what everybody else had done in that and ignored what god had done and he says in verse 31 or the bible says while the words were still in the king's mouth there fell a voice from heaven O king nebuchadnezzar to you it is spoken the kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know, it's the third time in this chapter this is said, pretty significant, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. I want you and I this morning to think about when God comes calling, when God comes knocking on the door of our heart, the door of our life, 
Nebuchadnezzar was not a, a God-fearing man. Oh, he was a spiritual man. The, we're told in archaeology that uh, the city of Babylon grew to about 200,000 people or so, maybe beyond. It was the first city in, in the world ever to have grown to that size. So it was sizable for its day. And, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar had built an amazing city, an amazing palace. In fact, archaeology, when they've dug it up, you've heard of the famous Ishtar Gate, right? The, just an amazing gate into the city. The city had eight different gates, and it's 40 feet tall. There's a slide of it that will uh, probably be up there in a second. But 40 feet tall, beautiful blue uh, architecture. Uh, and that was only one of eight, of eight gates. The walls, they had two separate walls to the city of Babylon. The, the inner wall was 20 feet thick, uh, just unbelievably thick. And the outer wall for the defense system was like 23 to 25 feet thick. thick. In fact, it was so wide, uh, archaeologists said in, in history, as they uh, you know, looked at all the tablets and cuneiforms and all the little things that inscriptions they found, but they could ride chariots across, across the, the top of the wall. So this was an absolute amazing palace. You've heard of the Hanging ba Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife was not from the plain of where Babylon is, to, right at the Euphrates River there in, in Baghdad, but she was from up in the hill country, if you will. And so I guess to remind her of home, so the, the, the story goes that he built these elaborate gardens and just... Uh, that, that were elevated and he, they had engineered how to bring water up naturally from the river Euphrates and have it pumped up to water all of these gardens to kind of recreate the hills and mountains where she had grown up. So he's just up there looking at his palace and saying, what an amazing place that I have built. It's interesting, archaeologists, as they've dug up, uh, have found a lot of the bricks that they had built the, the wall out of, and most of them had Nebuchadnezzar's name uh, stamped into the bricks. Amazing. He was fully taking credit for all the glory and all the thing that he had. In fact, other inscriptions have been uh, discovered that have said the same thing, you know, is this not, you know, for my glory, the city of I've built, that kind of thing. By the way, this is a side note. It just is a reminder while the Bible can be trusted that it syncs with history and archaeology. And every time archaeologists dig in the ground, they dig enough, they keep proving the Bible true, not disproving it. So all of that syncs historically and what we know and, and what uh, archaeologists are finding. But here's what I want you to notice. This first thing that I want you to notice this morning is this. God is always the one who makes the first move when he comes calling on you. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, who was the one that came searching out? It wasn't Adam and Eve going to God. It was God going to Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? When Moses was there tending the sheep, who was the one that, uh, that, um, that revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush? It was God. God showed himself and brought Moses over. When young Samuel, the young priest there serving Eli in the temple in the night, would hear his voice, Eli, Eli, and he didn't know who it was, and I could see him as a little boy getting out of his bed and going and running in the middle of the night, thinking Eli, his, his uh, leader, was calling him, and he wasn't. It was God reaching out to Eli. When we see, well, now we know Paul the Apostle, but Saul, when he was on the road to Tarsus, he wasn't seeking out God. He wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus came to him and said, what are you doing, Saul of Tarsus? What are you doing? 
Romans 3 says this, that there is no one who seeks God. I want us to realize that when God comes calling into our life, it's because God is taking the initiative into our life. When God comes working in your world, whether it's through circumstances, whether it's through another person, whether it's through scripture, when God comes knocking on your door, he is the one making the first move into your world and he's wanting to speak and to address certain things in your life. Usually he's dealing with sin, but he's dealing with sin in a way because he wants to reveal himself to you. God pays attention to our attitudes as well as our behaviors. God knew exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking. Nebuchadnezzar was walking around in complete pride and arrogance in his kingdom and all that he had built. And God came knocking into his world and said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not listening. I sent Daniel and put my man there right in front of you to, to speak out and to do something amazing that no one else in your kingdom, none of your other false gods and your other magicians and astrologers could answer. And you ignored him. I put three other men on top of it, and you saw with your own two eyes something amazing in that fiery furnace, and you ignored it. Oh, you gave glory to God to me at some level, but you really didn't take that in and really surrender your life and deal with that. And Nebuchadnezzar, instead of dealing with that honestly, you now have lifted yourself up in pride and are acting like you're the biggest thing going and that all of this in front of you is because you're some wonderful and amazing man King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to lower you. Not, I'm not just taking the crown off your head. I'm not just putting you into a blue-collar job. I'm not even going to just send you into slavery. You're going to be walking around for not just a day or two, for weeks, for months, literally losing your mind. I'm going to take, the Bible says, and I'm going to take that mind of a man, and it's going to become the mind of an animal, and you're going to think that you're a cow, and you're going to act like a cow, you're going to moo like a cow, and you're going to live like this for years because you're ignoring me and neglecting what I'm dealing with in your life. You see, guys, it's never a wise move for you and I to neglect the nudgings and the things that God is doing in our life. It's never a smart thing to ignore even the circumstances that are going on around us. The farther we go in sin, the deeper the hole that we get into, the more that we get caught and entrenched in it, the more painful it is when God has to strip that away. The higher we go into our pride and our ego and into our sinful world, the harder we fall when God pulls that out from under us and confronts us with that reality. The more advanced the cancer gets into our soul and eats at us, the more serious and intense and the, the treatments are to begin to address it. And Nebuchadnezzar had sunken deep within not, not the big sins of murder or rape or anything we would talk today. He was just prideful. And God so took notice of the attitude of his heart that said, it's going to stop Nebuchadnezzar. When God comes calling into your world, he is making a move because he's trying to reveal himself to you and he's trying to deal with something. So my encouragement to you is, is to listen quicker, to listen to those circumstances and those things. Sean, are you saying that every little bad thing that I have today that is God's trying to tell me that I've done something wrong? No, I'm not saying that. You can have a really bad day and it just be a really bad day. It's okay. You know, those happen. They happen to everybody. But sometimes God is 
engineering circumstances in our life because he's trying to get our attention. Because let's face it, if everything's going really well in our life, we have a tendency to act like Nebuchadnezzar, like, I don't need anything. Look how good life is. I deserve this. What a good boy I've been. What a good girl. Isn't this awesome? Instead, what happens is when things aren't working, that you and I are just like, what is going on? I don't know what I'm going to do. And we get stuck, and then we start looking around and saying, well, God, are you trying to say something? And God's like, yeah, I've only been calling you for the last two years. (laughs) What took you so long to ask? Because you and I are neglecting those nudges and those very clear things that God is trying to speak into our life. So this morning, I want to challenge you, mom as a mother, uh, dad as fathers, or if you're neither of those, just wherever you are in your life, to pay attention when God comes calling and knocking on your door. Well, Sean, how do I know if there's something going on in my world, if that's God or not? You know, I've learned a wonderful thing. All you have to do is say, God, are you trying to communicate to me something right now? As silly, as simple as that sounds, Sean, really? Yeah, really. If you're sincere in that and say, God, are you trying to share something with me that I need to know? Is there something? If you're really genuinely asking that question from a sincere place in your heart and from a willingness to be confronted with whatever God is wanting to deal with, He'll communicate that to you. All you got to do is ask. Second thing I want you to notice, when God comes calling, He makes the first move and he is addressing things in your life, likely sin, and, and wants to reveal himself to you. But he does it out of love with a desire to restore you. God doesn't want to just rub your face in it and always, um, you know, oh, you're always a bad person. Some of you grew up in, in, in a faith, whether a different religion or whether a different version of the Christian faith that... God is always this judgmental God that He's just always after you. Well, God is indeed a God of justice, and He is a holy God. But God doesn't just get His kicks out of watching us squirm. In fact, He is willing to confront us with our reality so that we might be humbled and might turn to Him and might accept Him and something that's a whole lot better. Look what He says. the Bible says in verse 34. Let's fast forward in the story. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he, get the picture, he's king of the land, and he's telling all of his subjects and all of the known world, if you will, that he was just lived like a, a, a crazy man out in the fields like a cow, and now he's writing to all of these people so that they might know. He's outing himself in all of the mess that he's been in. And he says in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, which is a subtle way of saying, I acknowledged that God is in charge. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed, this is significant, the Most High. Up to that point, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the Most High. And by this time, he says, no, God, you're the Most High. I blessed him, and I praised and I honored him who lives forever. You're the supernatural God. You rule over everything in the world. And he explains this. He says, for his dominion, in other words, his kingdom, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation, ongoing. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He's including himself. 
And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Do you think the punishment worked? I think it did. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors on my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Why did God come and humble Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, deep humbling, deep punishment into his world. He took what mattered the most to him and completely cut it down and brought him to his knees. God did it because he wanted him to understand reality and he wanted to restore him, and he did it as an act of love. See, God was coming to Nebuchadnezzar, not offended, not ticked off, not arrogant. We as people get offended at all kinds of other things that other people do. God wasn't offended in that way. You, you can't offend God in that kind of manner. <laughs> he's God. He's above everything that we can think or say or do, and He's not shocked or surprised at any of it. But God did want Nebuchadnezzar to know that he was living his life in a way that was offensive that was wrong, and that completely missed reality, and that as a result of it, he was living a life of a joke, and God showed him what life really is like when you ignore God. You see, we're made in the image of God. This judgment that Nebuchadnezzar brought, God brought to Nebuchadnezzar, it's the kind of idea that let the punishment fit the crime, right? Our basic laws in our land are designed that way, and hopefully they're there for the most part. But if you do a certain level of a crime, you get a certain level of punishment. If it's a deeper crime or a worse crime, then punishment goes up. Nebuchadnezzar's punishment fit his crime. God was showing him, Nebuchadnezzar, you want to act as if I don't exist? You want to live life as if you think that you've made it all and that you've needed nothing in this world? I'm going to show you what life really is like without me. When you live without me entirely, you are reduced to nothing but a common animal in the world around you. You see, we're made in the image of God, and because of it, it gives us a moral compass. It does a lot of things in our life. It, it's where we value things. It's where it, what teaches us to love. It teaches us compassion. It teaches us all kinds of things, empathy that we have towards other people. It's out of that that we create sacrifice and desire to serve and to, to give our lives for others. And, but a part of that is that, that moral compass that God puts in our life. And, Nebuch and God was saying, Nebuchadnezzar... If, if I were not around and if you really were in charge, this is all that the world would be. Full of just this, just an animalistic kind of way of life. But God was confronting him with that because he loved him and he wanted him to see the end of his ways, if you will, so that he would recognize and surrender his life to the God of heaven and so that God could restore him tremendously. Many scholars believe that this is, was Nebuchadnezzar's experience when he trusted God, trusted Christ, we would say today, that he got saved, that he surrendered his life to all that God had for him. We don't fully know. You can't, we can't answer that definitively yes or no. I tend to think he probably did. That he said, God, you're in charge. I'm not. I, I yield. 
I completely yield to you, the God of, of heaven. God cared about him in a way that didn't let him live his life, his entire life, to get away with it. You see, the most loving, merciful thing that God could ever do to you and me is for you and me to suffer the consequences of our sin, to confront us with those realities, to confront us. The worst thing that God could ever do in this world would be for you to, and me to live our lives without ever discerning that we were accountable for the things that we've done and for us to die ultimately without any hope without any future. The most loving thing that God could ever do would be to confront you and me. You know, the Bible says that when God comes to punish us for our sin, it's never fun, but He does it as a loving Father because He wants to, us to see reality and He wants us to own it, deal with it, so that He can restore us. In our culture, in our world, I think that's becoming increasingly a difficult concept. Some of you uh, are from a different era, if you will, and that was a more normal concept. But in the younger generations, that's increasingly becoming a foreign concept. Don't, don't say anything negative to a child. You might harm them the rest of their life. I'm not saying abusive, all right, but... It's okay to tell your kid no when they need to hear no. It's okay to say stop when they need to stop. That's what God does, and it's what God expects us, even as parents, to be able to address and confront realities. God is a loving God, but He's a very firm and a very tough God. And if we continue to resist the things that He's trying to communicate into our lives, to how much we depend upon Him, how much we need Him, how deep and entrenched in our sin and our pride and our ego and our selfishness and our own self-focused world, God's not going to cave. He's not going to be like the parent that always just complains or yells even more and more. He's a God who's going to act. He's a God that's going to confront us, not vindictively, not harshly, but firmly and confrontationally because without it, you and I are just like Nebuchadnezzar. We blow it off and we go on in life. Why? Because life is working, looking at all the stuff I'm building. Until God finally says, enough. And he draws the line within us. So I want you to have the concept in your mind, regardless if you've ever truly surrendered your life to Christ and really gone all in and said, God, this is not about me playing in religion, but I really yield to you. See, some of you are like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a religious man. There were 50 some odd temples throughout Babylon, and he was a man who had all these, these religious spiritual leaders trying to advise him. He was a spiritual man, but he had never really surrendered his life to God. And some of you are, are like that. God's not a God that we just dabble with and we just play in religion. He's a God that demands our full surrender to Him. And in the New Testament, we know that what that involves and means is us turning our life to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I have sinned. I trust you to be my Savior, my Lord, to forgive me, to save me. And I want you to be in charge of my life entirely. And God was bringing Nebuchadnezzar to that point to do that. 
And so whether or not you're, this, you're here listening to this this morning, that you're in that stage where Nebuchadnezzar is as a spiritual person, believing in God, but not really surrendering, if God's knocking on the door of your life through circumstances and situations and talking to you, what He's looking for you is to bend your knee and to surrender to Him. And if you've already surrendered to Jesus in the past and God's knocking on the door of your life, what He's saying is, I want you to continue to bend your knee. Quit going back and acting like I don't exist, that I'm not, you're in charge and I'm not. Because He's wanting to love us, to discipline us, to grow us, and to trust Him, and to experience all that He has for us in life. But He does it through that, those acts, those acts of judgment on our sin. So... When God comes calling, He moves first. He's always addressing something in your life and my life. When He does, He does it as an act of love. So that He pulls us out of that. He pulls us out of the entrapments and the lies and the snares and the pride and the ego and the selfishness and the jealousy and the bitterness and the anger and all of that junk. And the more we've been enmeshed and entrapped in all of that, the more painful it is because the deeper the hole is and the more that we get confronted with it, so the sooner we recognize it, the easier it is on us. But God is going to pursue us until we finally yield our life to Him. And that's the third thing that I want us to recognize is that what God wants from us is to submit to Him, to worship Him, and to have an attitude of, of thankfulness, of gratitude. Look what verse 37 says. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all His works are right, and His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. If we were to interview King Nebuchadnezzar right now, King, what was that like? It was awful. I'm convinced he remembered much of that. Otherwise, he would have woken up and been like, what are you people doing standing around? He, would have just, he wouldn't have remembered any of it. He, know, he remembered what happened to him and the awfulness that he went through. He didn't just take their word for it. They didn't have a, you know, cell phones where there were videos of him out there munching away on grass thinking he was a cow. He remembered it. And after that punishment, he said, God, I praise you. God, you're in charge. He didn't act in bitterness, anger, vindictiveness like we tend to want, often do when other people have made us do something we don't want to do. He didn't spit in God's face. He didn't lash out. Instead, he said, you're right, God. You're the high king of heaven. And I was in pride and you humbled me. I extol and I praise your honor. Your ways are just, which means everything that you do is right. He said, in essence, I deserved everything that I just went through. Every bit of it. I deserve it. What's God trying to communicate to you when, he, when you sense that God is putting His thumb on your life and that you've been playing out there in the world? God's wanting you to be just what King Nebuchadnezzar did. God, you're right. I'm the one who's wrong. Not why, God, is this happening to me? God, I don't deserve this. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. All of the things, the games that we play. He said, God, you, I deserve every bit of this. 
And here's what's astounding to me. This goes back to the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is where the king is writing this decree to all of his people, and he's sharing all of this. He's outing himself. It's a statement that's glorifying God and putting God in one generation at the very center of all of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar says this to all peoples, nations, and languages in verse 1, that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done, catch this, for me. Not to me, for me. And he goes on and expresses the praise of God's kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, did God do this to you? No. This was a blessing of God. He did this for me. Because without this, I would have been, been in my delusional lie, thinking I was the greatest thing ever on this earth. But because of it, I needed it. I was a real knucklehead. But because I wasn't listening to the whispers of God in my heart, because I wasn't listening to the friends that God had put in my palace, I wasn't listening to Daniel and his others, I wasn't even paying attention to the other things in my life. God had to bring me and confront me with the reality of my short, finite life and had to bring me to my knees. No, but I'm so grateful because it's worth it. So guys, I don't know where you are in your life this morning, but I know this. God loves you way more than you ever will realize. And I also realize that you and I are just like Nebuchadnezzar. No, we may not be king of New York or the U.S., thankfully, or Gilderland, or wherever else you may live. But we're our own little kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. And God pays attention to us and our attitudes and behaviors of our heart and our life every bit as much as He does Nebuchadnezzar. And He sends people across into our life. He sends circumstances into our life. He's not afraid to allow hardship, deep, very big, painful things. He's not afraid to use psychotic breaks, if that's what it takes for you and me to look up and say, God, I need you. What do I need to do? So this morning, if, if you're that person, I urge you to simply pray as our music team comes up and we get ready to, to sing our response song. I urge you to just simply say, God, what do I need to do? What are you trying to communicate? If you have that inkling that God's trying to kind of get through to you, His Holy Spirit is trying to speak into your heart, then I encourage you to just stop and say, God, I'm here. What do I need to know? And allow Him to convict you. Allow Him to tell you things that you don't really want to hear. Allow Him to confront you with your reality. Because if you don't, you're going to miss out on the restoration and the love that God has for you. You're going to go even deeper, double down even more to whatever it is you're doing. And when God finally really gets your attention, it's going to be even more painful because that cancer is going even deeper into your soul and it's going to be even harder when He becomes dealing with it and to pull it out. So as God comes knocking on your door, wherever you are in all of that, I want you to respond to Him today. So won't you stand as I pray? We're going to have a response song before, before our Lord's Supper. Father, I thank You for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for us. God, thank you that his death is sufficient to save us from our sins. Thank you that you didn't let us just live our life in our own little delusional world thinking that we're just awesome, but that you confront us with reality that we're not awesome, 
you're the one who makes us awesome when we turn our life to you. So God, I don't know where anyone is in this room, but I pray that your holy hand of heaven would reach down and speak into our hearts your truth through your word and through the things we've talked about today. Lord, as we participate in this supper, I'm so grateful that you confronted us with our sin and that you confronted our sins head on through Jesus, your son. It cost him his life on that cross. That's a picture of what you think about our sin, our lying, our stealing, our cheating, all the things that we've done, every one of us in this room, as we look at the cross, that's your holiness on display, your punishment for our sin. Thank you that Jesus stepped in, moved us out of the way, and took the full force of our punishment. And thank you, Father, that he rose from the dead on the third day in full victory. Help us, Father, to simply be willing to allow you to convict us of our sin and to turn to Jesus for that healing and that salvation. Thank you that we celebrate that fact in this supper. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.